Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Changing Waters podcast, brought to you by the National Fisheries Conservation Center, our Global Ocean Health Program, and by our friends at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Today, we're excited to bring you Global Ocean Health's Julia Sanders, interviewing Dr. Lisa Levin. Dr. Levin is a distinguished professor of biological oceanography and marine ecology at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Dr. Levin specializes in deep sea and coastal deoxygenation, yet another consequence of carbon pollution and its effects on the ocean. She and Julia discuss her work with remote operated vehicles that allow her to view conditions on the seafloor and an alarming trend of oxygen dead zones, including those responsible for large fish kills. Dr. Levin also recently co-wrote an op-ed in The Ecologist which discusses the gradual and escalating inclusion of the ocean in the annual meeting of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where all the nations gather to discuss world progress on climate change since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. There has been a trend toward recognizing the importance of the role that the ocean plays as a carbon and heat sink and the harm it's suffering from carbon pollution. Dr. Levin talks about how recognizing changing conditions and the importance of mitigation efforts play a key role in the international stage and how countries can include the ocean in their individual contributions to lowering emissions and protecting valuable natural resources. I give you Julia Sanders and her interview with Dr. Lisa Levin. I am happy to have uh, Lisa Levin here with me today, and I am excited to hear about some of the work that she does, uh, particularly on ocean deoxygenation um, and hypoxia, as well as uh, some of her experiences with COP21 and the Paris Agreement and what we can do on the United Nations level to affect ocean policy. So let's start off with um, some of your research. It's really interesting and really unique. What can you what can you tell us about it, Lisa? Hi, Julia. Thank thanks for uh, having me speak with you. I have been interested in the effects of oxygen on life in the ocean for about the past thirty or so years, and it was really. I stumbled on this by accident while diving in the submarine Alvin. We came up, up to the top of a seamount where life more or less disappeared. And we more figured out that was the result of the absence of oxygen, a naturally occurring phenomenon called oxygen minimum zones. And that was in the 1980s. And since then, late 80s, I've been studying the effects of low oxygen on seafloor communities and uh, seafloor animals. And uh, we've learned that oxygen has a very powerful effect on the diversity of ecosystems, on the um, morphology and lifestyles of animals, and um, more recently, our research has looked into the effects on vision in animals. It turns out vision is highly sensitive to low oxygen. And um, much of our early work was a little bit esoteric in that these were natural systems, but far out of sight of people. But now we've learned that 
global warming is leading to oxygen loss in the ocean, what we call ocean deoxygenation, and that these naturally occurring low oxygen zones are expanding, um, as well as uh, what we call dead zones in the coastal regions. These are the result of excess nutrients and eutrophication. And global warming is exacerbating this problem and creating more dead zones. So now we know that oxygen loss is intimately uh, tied to and an important part of of climate change. And so this has been motivating my recent work. Very interesting. And um, now these dead zones are often responsible for some of those really dramatic pictures we see of fish kills, right? Where you just have thousands upon thousands of fish washing up dead on shore or suddenly um, popping up around uh, in an estuary, for example. Uh-huh, that's right. I mean, we associate it with mass mortality and uh, and these occurrences are expanding. For example, off of Southern California, where I live and work, we had what I think is our first coastal dead zone occur uh, associated with a massive red tide, which we think was induced by uh, excess warming of the ocean combined with excess rainfall and stratification layerings. And so, um, and there was so much of this red tide, this algal bloom that it led to uh, consumption of oxygen and, and um, mass mortalities of our coastal organisms. We sometimes see this in our local estuaries. And in fact, we study this when, when the estuaries close, they go hypoxic in Southern California, but I've never in all my years working there seen oxygen loss in coastal waters. And we had that happen this spring. Wow, that's just horrific. Uh, some of those images just really are seared in my mind. Um, because you just never see that kind of mass mortality. And I remember writing uh, last summer for our ocean acidification report about how uh, the Gulf of Maine was experiencing some uh, extreme deoxygenation and uh, hypoxia that was causing uh, the lobster traps to come up full of dead lobsters because that, that very low level water uh, just had no oxygen. Hmm. Oh my, I had not heard about that. That's very concerning. Yeah, yeah, extremely. That's a, a critical piece of, of how people make their living out there. And, um, and the Gulf of Maine is considered to be one of the fastest warming and fastest acidifying large bodies of water in the world. So it's just kind of more evidence, as you say, of the the multiple stressors that come about as a part, as a part of climate change. You know, it's, it's all traced back to this issue. I think most people don't realize that warming is directly linked to oxygen loss in two ways. One is that um, the solubility of oxygen goes down as the water warms. So ocean water can hold less oxygen. And the second way is that warming causes thermal stratification, which is a layering of the ocean, which prevents the vertical mixing that normally brings oxygen from the air and the surface waters into deeper waters. And, and when both of those things happen, the ocean, as the ocean warms, it loses oxygen. And that's what's happening now. 
Right, right. And then, as you said, there's also the link with um, some of these harmful algal blooms, right, because uh, additional uh, nutrients and other causes will cause these uh, kind of larger than before seen uh, algal blooms that suck up all of the oxygen from the surrounding waters, right? As they decay. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And really, I, I'd say scientists are just beginning to study the links between global warming and harmful algal blooms and oxygen loss. Yes, I remember uh, learning a few years ago that uh, one of the most common uh, harmful algal blooms here on the West Coast that's responsible for uh, some of the Dungeness crab and razor clam fishery shutdowns, pseudonychia, that they found that when it's present in high carbon content water, that uh, not only is it toxic, but there's more toxin per cell. So not only are we getting these larger blooms, but also these more toxic blooms than we've seen in the past. And I thought that was just really uh, frightening. Yeah, the, the big bloom we just had off San Diego and, and uh, Los Angeles was Lingulodinium, which is normally not considered a toxic alga, but there is some concern that it released yesotoxin, which is maybe kind of a um, a new toxin that that we hadn't really expected to see in this region. Interesting. Um, now, do I understand that you do some work with uh, remote vehicles on the seafloor as well and, and get some of this images of, of deep sea, low, low oxygen areas uh, direct from remote vehicles? Um, we, we do it in several ways. We use submarines and we use remotely operated vehicles tethered to a ship. Very cool. And how did you become uh, passionate about this subject? <laughs> um, wow. You know, I, I've always, well, since I was a graduate student, I've been interested in both the deep, deep ocean and coastal waters and really the principle, the ecological principles that govern life in the ocean are not very different in the deep sea and in shallow. So I've, um, pretty much my entire career, I've been working partly in, um, in deep ocean ecosystems along continental margins. And when I say deep, we, we mean below 200 meters when we say deep. And I typically only work down to a few thousand meters water depth. Um, and, um, and then of course, coastal would be shallower than that. But I, I got interested from uh, having a fascinating deep sea biology class when I was a graduate student. And this is a, a system a set of environments on the planet. In fact, it's most of the planet, the deep sea, uh, that is so diverse. Every time you go down to a place that nobody's been to before, you find new species and sometimes even new ecosystems. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA 
coastalnewstoday.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Very cool. To talk a little bit about this uh, great op-ed that you uh, co-wrote with a couple of others and The Ecologist recently um, concerning the United Nations process and the role that the ocean plays in that. Um, any viewers or listeners that might be interested in finding that, they can just search Google uh, Lisa Levin and The Ecologist and it'll pop right up. The name of the op-ed is A Sea Change. Now, I have some personal experience in this. I was lucky enough to attend uh, COP21 myself. I was given a grant to report on ocean matters for our ocean acidification report uh, at COP21. And I remember being really struck that despite the ocean being responsible for uh, being the largest carbon sink in the world and absorbing over 90% of our oxygen and being a critical source of protein for billions of people and and really just controlling the climate in so many ways, um, it wasn't that spoken of. It was not nearly uh, receiving the attention that terrestrial land-based issues were. And so while they did have an ocean day, it was just one of, of many hundreds of activities that were going on on that particular day. But since then, I've been happy to see uh, every year progressively a bit more of a, of a change towards more focus on the ocean, more acknowledgement of how uh, nations can make their sustainable development goals include uh, things that are important uh, to oceans and in particular maintaining and um, controlling in the face of climate change uh, some of these changing conditions that uh, that so many nations across the world are experiencing. So I really admired uh, this op-ed that you worked on and I wondered, I know this isn't your uh particular area of expertise, but if you could just talk a little bit about, uh, about an overview of, of what, uh, what's being done on that kind of higher United Nations level. Uh, sure. And, and thanks for the compliment on the op-ed. Um, I, I've been going to the climate negotiations for the past six, six COPs, so COP20 was my first one. And like you, I've watched the attention to the ocean grow. It's, it's, it's not happened by itself. There's been a lot of ocean scientists and ocean practitioners who have advocated strongly for uh, the negotiators to recognize the role of the ocean and build it into the negotiations. Uh, and I guess we're talking about the UNFCCC here, the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. They work closely with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the science body. And, um, and even the attention there on the IPCC has been growing rapidly. 
uh, the ocean attention. Um, and last year, there was a special report on oceans and cryosphere released. And that was really the first time that the, the IPCC scientists had focused exclusively on the ocean and you know, had a chance to do a, a very large assessment, but it also revealed a lot of gaps. But what's happening at the negotiation level um, is really a recognition that the ocean can contribute to both mitigation of climate change and to um, adaptation to climate change. There is... Um, I'm not sure uh, if everybody's listening is familiar with the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions are how each of the signatories to the Paris Agreement, you know, the climate agreement, indicate what their nation will do to um, both mitigate and adapt to climate change. And um, there is increasing incorporation of the ocean in these NDCs. Um, and, and examples would include using blue carbon ecosystems, the expansion and restoration of these as a way to increase um, carbon dioxide uptake from the atmosphere. That would be an example of mitigation. Um, the opportunities to uh, involve the shipping sector and change to, um, to, uh, to, to go off fossil fuels and to change um, engine systems and so on, uh, opportunities for ocean renewable energy, things like offshore wind. Um, and and th those would all be examples of mitigation that could be incorporated. And then adaptation can include protection of marine ecosystems to increase climate resilience and also to protect systems like the blue carbon wetlands, mangroves, seagrasses, and salt marshes that take up so much uh, carbon. At the same time, they provide really important climate protections to coastal ecosystems. So um, working in the NDCs is one of the, uh, or um, I guess enhancing the role of the ocean in the NDCs is one option. Um, countries have national adaptation plans that can also include oceans. And, you know, everything from livelihoods to um, different kinds of ocean-related industries to, as I mentioned, coastal protection and uh, disaster, <laughs> basically preventing catastrophic flooding and storm, storm surge are all things, uh, ways that the ocean is, is linked to climate and climate, climate adaptation. Great. And I just want to clarify a little bit more about um, what blue carbon set, uh, is. As you said, it's um, some of these systems like mangrove, salt marsh, um, seagrass that have this incredible ability to sequester carbon and store it for the long term. And in many cases, it does so at a, uh, a rate that is many times that of some of their equivalents on land. So more than a tree, more than a tropical forest or a prairie. Um, and as you said, have some climate controls of their own and are usually uh, really critical for protecting important, uh, particularly juvenile uh, life in the uh, in those coastal systems. So uh, they're often referred to as the as the juvenile nursery nurseries of many 
commercial species. And, um, and they're kind of like this green ribbon across uh, the world's coasts that uh, serve these, these incredible triple processes, um, but are vanishing at an alarming, alarming rate. So if we can learn to value them for all that they are, particularly their carbon sequestration value in these nationally determined contributions, then we have a much better chance of seeing them preserved and even enhanced. So I just wanted to uh, to make sure that our listeners realize just what blue carbon is. Um, so that's great. And I understand that, uh, that recently we had what was uh, intended to be the blue cup and blue referring to the ocean, right? Um, and so even even more of a, a focus than had previously been seen. Yeah, I, the the last COP was held in Madrid in 2019, you know, late 2019. And one of the important um, agreements the negotiators reached was to hold um, an ocean dialogue. This is the first time that there's really been a major ocean focus when any of the uh, UNFCCC COP-related activities. And so there was an ocean dialogue held in early December of 2020. It was uh, intended originally to be in person, um, part of the SUBSTA, the technical body discussions, but it ended up being held remotely because of COVID-19. And um, that dialogue went on for a couple of days. It involved um, a variety of different countries, but also different stakeholders, um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and, and youth groups and other organizations with a stake in the ocean. And they discussed um, both the importance of the ocean for the climate system, but also the types of actions that could be taken going forward. Um, there were f- uh, 40 eight or 47, 48 submissions from different countries and organizations to this dialogue. And um, I and a, a, a group of others from the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative uh, did an analysis of these to see what types of issues uh, were prioritized in those ocean dialogue submissions. And that actually led to uh, a summary, a, a presentation, and then um it's what led to the op-ed that you were referring to. Great. And in looking over the op-ed now, I'm seeing that uh, there really is a lot of action coming from a lot of different places, including uh, the World Ocean Assessment, which uh, you write is a comprehensive report on the current state of the oceans and how humans benefit from and affect them and that it's an underutilized yet rich resource offering policy options for decision makers to focus minds and that the next report is due to be released this this year in 2021. So that sounds like it's something that has the potential uh, to do a lot of good for decision makers. Yeah, we we called it out in our our synthesis of these submissions um, because it didn't appear 
very much. I think only one or two of, of the submissions mentioned it, and yet this is an incredible resource. The first one was released about five years ago, and it was intended to summarize and assess the state of the oceans for policymakers, but it, it doesn't really seem to be getting the use that it should. Um, and so we, we're trying to draw some attention to this. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, well, that's a good way to start. Um, I see that there's also a mention of the 30 by 30 campaign, um, which is a call to safeguard at least 30% of the world's ocean by 2030. Um, and that's something that uh, will take some, some major movement in order to, uh, to make a reality. But uh, would be incredible to see. I mean, a, a full third of the ocean protected uh, would be quite the quite the accomplishment. So, as you as you mentioned, there's there's quite a lot of these different campaigns that are underway, uh, including um, the high level ocean panel, uh, which includes 14 world leaders who have just committed to sustainably manage all of their ocean waters by 2025. Uh, a few short years away at this point. Um, and then the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, which has uh, already kind of kicked off with some initial webinars and um, will be an entire decade, once in a generation type effort to, uh, to stop the decline in ocean health and make a plan to reverse it. So it'll be really interesting to follow that and see uh, what kind of participation it draws. I know that um, as soon as I've received emails notifying me of these webinars, they have already been sold out. So uh, that is an, a good indicator or a good way to a good way to begin before it's even officially started. Yeah, the the Decade for Ocean Science is very interesting because it's a science program led by the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, the IOC, but it's a UN-based um, effort. And it's really trying to direct the science that gets done in the ocean over the next 10 years to addressing societal problems as represented in the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, and that's a first. I you know I think scientists often do science for science's sake. Uh, many of us recognize the important um, applications of our work and have you know shift. I, I know personally, I've shifted over the years to do more and more work that is at least societally relevant. But having the ocean decade to to coordinate at the highest levels the different types of science that can secure a, a sustainable, healthy, productive ocean is, is um, new and important. And, you know, hopefully uh, many, many different types of um, scientists and ocean, <laughs> ocean practitioners, I call them, or ocean stakeholders will contribute to this. Very cool. So it sounds like it's kind of an exciting time to be involved uh, as an ocean scientist interested in particularly in, in climate change and, and global warming. Yeah, I should mention also, you know, in terms of achieving this 30% protection of the ocean, it's important to realize there's a new biodiversity treaty being negotiated 
for international waters right now. And the outcomes of that, uh, which has marine spatial planning and area-based management and, and marine protected areas is an important component of it. You know, So a successful outcome for that treaty will be an important part of achieving this 30, per, 30 by 30, you know, the ocean protections. Cool. And I love uh, the last line of this op-ed here where you say, our ocean has enormous potential to guard against some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change, but can only do that if we look after it. Uh, I think that was really powerful and resonant. Is there something um, that you can recommend to our listeners that isn't quite on this high international level that they themselves can do uh, on a on a citizen level uh, to support these efforts? And, and even if it's just um, becoming educated and sharing articles like this, um, talking about it or becoming engaged in some of the, uh, the ground level projects that are out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody has a, every person on this planet has a role to play. And I think most people realize the choices they make, um, about what they eat and what they drive and how they live and who they vote for, all of these things um, can influence the well-being of the ocean one way or another. But I do think it's great to raise awareness and, and share with others um, examples of, of how important the ocean can be. I mean, it, the ocean is basically, in addition to being part of the planet's life support, it it's something that for those of us who have the opportunity to actually see and be near the ocean, it's an amazing, provides an amazing sense of well-being. At least it, it does for me, uh, knowing that there is a healthy ocean out there with the wealth of life that lives there. Mm-hmm. We have uh, these great groups called the Marine Resource Committees here in Washington State that um, are citizen groups, including uh, some members from tribes and, and business and NGOs, but, but mostly citizen-led. And they'll have efforts like um, going out and surveying the kelp, uh, just grabbing a kayak and doing a, a kelp survey each year, or um, going out on the beach and counting the number of forage fish eggs uh, in a grid and, and thereby making assumptions about the return, you know, these these efforts to to encourage the return of, of these critical link in the food chain, forage fish, um, or uh, Olympic oyster, Olympia oyster uh, restoration efforts where they've um, gone out there and made sure that our native oyster is recurring and then uh, each year go out and see how those efforts are uh are making it if they're rebounding and where they're rebounding, where it's been most effective and where, what we can learn from it. So there's a lot of these really interesting ways to get out there on the beach and do something um, that will pay off in science as well as just being a cool day at the beach. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's important for people to realize that anything they do to help address climate problems and climate change will help the ocean because the ocean is suffering severely from 
excess heat, excess carbon dioxide, oxygen loss, and and more. And and so and so literally any any step that we take, whether it's you know eating less beef or you know driving a, a a hybrid or an electric car or turning off our lights, even you know just anything we do we do ultimately helps the ocean and um, and anything we do to harm the ocean ultimately harms us. So that's important to remember. That's a very, very fair point. Yeah. So you don't even have to go out there um, to be making a difference every day. Plastic pollution is another uh, grave area of concern. And, and uh, you know, you see these images of beaches that are just covered with the disposable plastic water bottles and um, grocery shopping bags and those kind of things. So those are easy steps for, for people to take um, that have a a profound effect on the health of our ocean. So thank you for pointing that out. That's very true. Um, and thank you for talking with me today. Uh, it's really fascinating to learn about your work, uh, both on the seafloor and the coastal waters, as well as uh, this kind of high-level UNFCCC work. Um, I hope that we continue to see this uh, transition to discussion about the ocean and the critical role that it plays in our world's ability to handle the excessive amounts of carbon dioxide and warming and other pollutants that we're driving. Um, without the ocean, we would uh, really be in a in a much more difficult spot in so many ways. But um, you know, it's about time that it started receiving uh, some of the attention that it, that it deserves in these high-level multinational talks. Um, and I would also finally like to share my favorite anecdote about um, COP21 and when the Paris Agreement was signed. Um, so the negotiations had gone over by a day or two, as I recall, and there was just a ton of anxiety and it was so critical that we get this, this all encompassing agreement. The Paris agreement was a huge step forward of the likes that hadn't been seen in, in well over a decade. And so everyone was really, um, so anxious to see that it be done and signed and finished before, uh, you know, these 198 countries' leaders went home. And so I remember uh, in the area where uh, people had their, um, you had to have a badge to, to be in this particular area, and there was still nearly 10,000 people all gathered together in this space, which is kind of hard to wrap your mind around in these days of COVID, but, uh, you know, just tens of thousands, 10,000 people. And um, so they finally made the announcement over the broadcast system that the Paris Agreement had been signed. And um, simultaneously, you know, people were receiving via their devices, um, you know, the, the exact details of the agreements and that for the first time, essentially, all of the world's nations had acknowledged that climate change was a problem and that they were going to work together to uh, to fix it. And so 
then it was just this massive outpouring of emotion where uh, complete strangers had tears running down their face and were hugging each other and, you know, grabbing a stranger and spinning with them and uh, just laughing. And I've just never experienced anything like it in my whole life of just this, this outpouring of joy uh, with such a large group. And you sometimes hear about these, um, these large outbreaks of emotion, but, but rarely are they so positive, um, where it's just so many people sharing in the joy of something that so many believed in so strongly and had traveled so far to see accomplished. And, and it was kind of a, a lifelong dream for many people to see this Paris Agreement come together. So I'm I'm very envious because I had to leave. I had to leave after the first week of that meeting and I wasn't there for that to experience that, which is sort of like the Climate World Cup or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good description. That's very much what it was like. And um, so I wanted to to share that experience with with all of our our listeners because it I doubt that I will uh, ever see anything like that again maybe I will but um, even if it's just once in a lifetime it, it, I will never forget it uh, it was incredible so all the more reason that it's important that we continue to see those goals carried forward and um, each of the countries living up to the commitments that were made uh, that day And the ocean made it into the preamble of the Paris Agreement, which was very important. Absolutely. Yep. That was my own little um, something to jump about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you again for your time today. And um, I look forward to hearing more about all of these things as they develop. Well, thank you for speaking with me, Julia, and I wish you and the ocean a really good 2021. (laughs) 